Coming up on the debut episode of the Put It on the Board White Sox podcast, it's a look at the offseason in review. What move the White Sox made, what moves the White Sox didn't make, what we would have done differently, and are they better this year than they were last year? How big of an impact will Pedro Grifol and his new coaching staff have after Tony Larusa is no longer with the team? Then a look at Major League Baseball's new rule changes that are in effect in Major League Spring Trainings. Do we like them? Do we love them? Do we hate them? Find out. We go into details on what we could change to make them better and uh, make sure that everybody is happy with the new era of baseball that we are in. Finally, it is a breakdown of the top 30 prospects in the White Sox farm system. According to the new list released by MLB.com, we are joined by Michael Suero of Sox on 35th for his take on the risers, the fallers, the up-and-comers, and bearish and bullish prospects. So a packed debut show with Put It on the Board. Let's get into it. This is episode one of the Put It On The Board podcast. I am your host, Sam Phelan, and my co-host, Noah Phelan, is with me. Man, it is the debut episode, the premiere episode of us talking all things White Sox here in a podcast format for the first time, Noah. This is like our phone conversations that we have pretty regularly, but uh, finally recorded and then put online for... I don't know, however many dozen people to listen to it at a time. Yeah, you better be careful now because some of those bad takes that you just tell me over the phone are now going to be on the Internet and they're I, going to be permanent. So. I have no bad takes. That is a fun fact about me. <laughs> I, I, I say nothing but correct takes. That is uh... <laughs> no, but seriously, we've been talking about potentially doing something like this for a long time, for a few years now. I'm very excited that we finally are doing it um, and I hope that other members of the White Sox community will get something out of it and will jo- enjoy listening to our conversations and our takes, even if they don't agree. Well, I am going to enjoy that the receipt part of this that you said, because I feel like I tell you things all the time that I'm actually vindicated by like a couple weeks later or however many days later or months later where I'm like see I was right about that but nobody knows it, it, it died in some phone call back in 2018 or something like this. so this is a good like get it out there into the world if things come true I will be posting the clips on Twitter and I will be bragging to people and if things go wrong I will be deleting the episode from the internet. So if you're listening to this it's because I haven't said anything incredibly wrong yet. Which we'll see how far that lasts. But uh we had a couple good topics today for the show uh really 6 months to recap essentially in uh 25 to 30 minutes, however long that we have here, but we're going to do the off season in review, a pretty uneventful off season for the White Sox, which helps us in our time constraint. Uh, And then we're going to do MLB rule changes. That is the story right now. If you flip on any spring training game, that's probably what the broadcasters are talking about. And there's probably a couple, wait, what just happened? Pitch clock violation moments. So we each have thoughts on it. I think I have a pretty strong opinion about the 
MLB rule changes. We're going to get into that. And then later in the show, we have Michael Suero of Sox on 35th joining us to recap the top 30 prospects in the White Sox system, the new list released by MLB.com. So going over all of the big names in the prospect and farm system world, who do you need to pay attention to with the season less than a month away now? But Noah, you cannot talk 2023 White Sox without talking about the offseason and the winter and the roller coaster and the frustration that is now instilled in this fan base again because of the offseason. Fair enough? Yeah, I mean, I think in order to talk 2023, you have to talk 2022. And all of 2022 has been talked about many more times than either of us even care to mention. Um, but I think the point of the whole offseason and the, the purpose of the White Sox moving into 2023 is just we have to be better. We cannot have 2022 over again. They finished 81 and 81. They missed the playoffs in what was supposed to be a year of their championship window. And no matter how you feel about the offseason or the team coming into 2023, it just it has to be better. And many people have different thoughts about how the offseason went. And I'm sure that we will dive into all of the moves that they made uh, and maybe what they could have done differently. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, it is just so infuriating and so frustrating because like if you would have told me five years ago that the White Sox were going to go 81 and 81, I would have been jumping for joy and just happy to watch them play competitive baseball in September. That was my goal for this team for the longest time was, well, can you get me competitive ball in September? But Noah, I was in the building for that ALDS game three against the Houston Astros. And I felt that crowd and that atmosphere on the South side, watching those guys play playoff baseball at home for this loyal fan base for the first time since 2008. And I was so hungry for more. Uh, Like my takeaway from that season was we deserve more of that. But, and, and for all of the, the moaning and complaining that White Sox fans can do and as angry as White Sox fans can get. There is no denying. Uh, it's one of my favorite videos. I, I'm sure you've seen it, but it, it's moments before disaster for the Houston Astros. Gavin Sheets is standing on first base and uh, they knock Luis Garcia out of that baseball game to bring in, uh, I believe it was, who is it that gave up the home run to Leary? I believe it was... Uh, uh, it was Yimi the guy Garcia? that came. Yeah, Yimi the Garcia. guy that came from the Blue Jays. Yimi Garcia. That's right. I right? believe. I believe that is correct. But yeah. so they bring in Garcia, and, and Luis Garcia is walking out, and the "Hey, hey, hey, goodbye" is echoing through the stadium. And Gavin Sheets turns to Daryl Boston on first base and is like, "This place is rocking," and he is like beside himself at how loud and electric White Sox fans are. And it was just a. We deserve more of that, and they let us down last year. And so for as loud and as great as we were then, we were also loud and chanting fire Tony last year. So message to the players and the owners out there, Tim Anderson, looking at you, uh, if you want the good side, give us the good side on the field and you'll get it. But infuriating, nonetheless, that we are here talking about a White Sox team that we were hoping would be a World Series favorite at this point in time and that we thought would be a perennial playoff contender. One of those 
Like we should have the mindset right now that we had going into last year, which is, well, they're going to make the playoffs. How good are you in the American league? But we're not even there. We are. Can you win the division? Can you get second place in the division? Can you go over 500? And that's a really, really sad reality. Um, and it starts because of the off season and because of, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf. And for a while, I didn't want to criticize Rick Hahn, but Rick Hahn too, not pushing the chips all in and, you know, trying, trying to find a way to catch lightning in a bottle. So let's summarize it real quick before we get into some of these questions. The White Sox key departures. You lose Jose Abreu. That is uh, point one. And, and I mean, I'll let you speak on that a little bit, but I think you and I are both in agreement on Jose Abreu leaving and why it had to happen. Uh, and I don't think either one of us are necessarily ha- have any hard feelings towards the team for not having 79 and pinstripes this year. Absolutely. I, I am a big Jose Abreu fan. I, I, I've loved him since the moment he put on the White Sox uniform. And I think it's really impossible for a White Sox fan who has followed the team all these years to not love Jose Abreu. That being said, becoming said more it before, poss- it's becoming more possible now. <laughs> Well, he's talking his way into being <laughs> unlikable. I, I'll let you keep going. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, all of that being said, I said it before they did it. I said it after they did it. I said it while it was happening. Letting Jose Abreu walk was the right move for the White Sox this offseason. And there are there are maybe things they could have done to not have that to be in that situation where they needed to do that. But that's the reality of where we're at right now. You have a guy in Andrew Vaughn who you love his bat. You drafted him third overall. Obviously they love him as an offensive player, but who are we kidding? Andrew Vaughn is not an outfielder. And no matter how much the White Sox have tried to put him in the outfield the last two seasons, it's not working. So Andrew Vaughn needs to be moved back to first base where he belongs. You also have a guy in Eloy Jimenez where you love his bat. He's put up great offensive numbers when healthy, but again, he's not an outfielder. And so you have only one DH spot and you have first base. And if you re-sign Jose Abreu, you've got three guys for those two spots. So the easiest thing you could have done is let Abreu go. Now, there was an argument. Well, it's not even about like, not even about whether or not they're an outfielder to me regarding Vaughn and Eloy and Sheets, who's probably going to end up playing out there anyway. But like, it was a health thing. Like, like Andrew Vaughn was awesome last season until August. And he hit August and like, there was a sense of, hey, he's dying a little bit. Like his legs are dying. He's not used to like, this is not who he is being an outfielder. And he's losing a little bit of his stamina over the course of 162 games. And Eloy, like, we know what the deal is with Eloy. It's like, well, how can you stay on the field? Now, I know last year, I don't believe he got hurt playing defense at all. I Like, it was a lot of other stuff that happened. But we've seen it where we, the torn peck was in left field. We've seen him run into the wall or bang his head or flop over. He doesn't have good body control. And put him in bubble wrap, stick him on the bench and say, all right, go hit once every two or three innings and take four or five at bats. Like that is Eloy's role on this team. So like those guys are valuable to you for your, for their bat, like you mentioned. And so it's, how do you put them in a position to give you as many productive at bats as possible? 
And that's not putting them in the outfield. You need them on the field. So throw anybody else out there. That was kind of more important to me than anything else. Yeah. And there was an argument that I heard from many people online that was, well, the Sox should trade Andrew Vaughn. And that was your other option. Uh, If you wanted to keep Jose Abreu, that was probably something that they needed to do. But if you look at it from a baseball perspective, I mean, you love Jose Abreu. He's still a productive bat, but he's going to be 36, 37 years old this year. Andrew Vaughn is 25. I mean, if you're looking to have an extended championship window, and if you're looking for a guy who you can keep on your team for several years, I like betting on the youth more than I like betting on the 36-year-old to not decline. And we already did see a bit of a decline in Abreu's power last year. Can we talk so, about the contract, too? I mean, that deal he got from Houston. Who's uh, matching that? What, what did I, he get? Two years, 32? I want three, to say. I believe it was three for 60, 20 mil a oh, year so for even three more years. Than I yeah, I mean, you're not touching that. You're not matching that, especially not cutting payroll, Jerry. But uh, when you are in the current like the roster construction you have, you're not paying $20 million to another corner infielder slash DH. So like that was just a contract that I think unless Abreu was willing to take the, the big hometown discount to stay in Chicago, it wasn't a realistic thing to bring him back anyways. No. And Abreu did say that the White Sox did make him an offer. Uh, when he first signed with the Astros, he did say the White Sox made me an offer. It was a really good offer. Um, and obviously we don't know what that is, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was not what Houston offered him uh, or even yeah, no. really close to what Houston offered him. Uh, and I, for one, would have been pretty upset if the White Sox had given Abreu the same deal that Houston gave him. So I'm happy with that. It it sucks to see him in another uniform. It's going to hurt, but you got, I think you got to clarify that too. Like you're upset that they gave him that deal or that they would have given him that deal. Not because we don't like paying good players because we know how the white Sox operate. And we know they would have used that three years, $20 million commitment to put their hands in the air, cry poor, and then not sign anybody for the next couple seasons. So like, if you can yeah, exactly. be, the, if you can be the Padres and sign like six players until they're 41 years old and pay them big money and just say, eh, that's a future problem. Then I'm in, then pay a Bray, whatever he wants, bring him back in. And you know, that's a good problem to have if you have too many good bats, but not when it means they're not going to make some of these other moves that they made. All right. Other names that left. Johnny Cueto, Josh Harrison, A.J. Pollock, Adam Engel, Danny Mendick, Vince Velasquez. All of those guys landed big league deals uh, with other teams. Cueto in Miami, Harrison's with the Phillies, Pollock is Seattle, Adam Engel, San Diego, Danny Mendick is with the Mets, and Vince Velasquez got a wonderful hype video from the Pittsburgh Pirates to welcome him aboard their team as their big offseason uh addition i suppose if you're a pittsburgh pirates fan that's the life you live what was who on this list i i think there's an obvious one but but who of those really kind of like hurt to you to not have them back in the white Sox uniform yeah i mean it's got to be johnny cueto i mean he's the obvious the obvious answer here and you know they did replace him with mike clevenger and Moving forward, once again, you've got Cueto, who's in his mid to late 30s. You've got Clevenger, who's a few years younger than that. So you might look at it as uh, who do we think is most likely to regress. 
Um, so it'll remain to be seen whether bringing back Johnny Cueto on a one-year deal would have been a better move than signing Clevenger. We will see at the end of the year. Um, but I will tell you this. I think A.J. Pollock did the Sox a favor by turning down his player option. He then signed for less money with Seattle, um, and I think it freed up a little bit of money for them. Um, to but do honestly, what, I, I would have I would like I told you this ahead of the offseason too. like and a lot of Sox fans out there were rooting for A.J. Pollock to opt out to clear that money and, you know, get free from that contract. I was hoping he would opt in because I wasn't very confident that they would do anything to add to the outfield uh, outside of a left fielder, which they did do. But like, I still think, and I, I've told you this, I, I think Oscar Colas needs an insurance policy behind him. I like Oscar Colas. I believe in him. I think he's going to be a very good major leaguer, but I don't know if he's a good major leaguer April 15th. Like, and I, I think a guy of Pollock status that he's not a great defender, but he's an outfielder and you can stick him out there and he can hit left-handed pitching particularly well and be a platoon option and a veteran. Like that was a guy that I would have really liked on this team, the same way I was advocating as well as you for Adam Duvall or a Robbie Grossman type. Like, so I think he would have fit and filled a need and especially given the fact that where did that payroll go? Like they're, they're down in payroll from last season. So you can add that contract back onto their current payroll, be right around the same spot. And I think have a lot of depth in the outfield that they need right now. So I think in hindsight, I'd almost rather have AJ Pollock back, but then it's okay. Do you go, do they go sign Andrew Benintendi? Do they go make some of these other moves? If AJ Pollock's under contract with the team still probably not. Yeah, I think I, I totally understand what you're saying, and I agree. Uh, I've been I've been advocating on Twitter, which is um, where I tell the White Sox front office what to do all the time, uh, and they don't seem to listen to me very often. But I was I've been saying on Twitter for a while that I think the White Sox need another outfielder, um, and I'm not asking for another starting outfielder. I'm asking for, like you said, Adam Duvall was a name that I mentioned. Robbie Grossman, another name that I thought would be a good fit. Um, AJ Pollock, you could put in that category, um, but I don't think AJ Pollock sees himself in that category. I think AJ Pollock is looking to start somewhere. So my one concern with him coming back would be, what does that mean for Oscar Colas? Is is AJ Pollock a roadblock in the in the potential path to at bats for Oscar Colas? Whereas a guy like Duvall or Grossman, uh, Duvall is probably going to start for the Red Sox, so good for him. Um, but Robbie Grossman at this stage in his career is a fourth outfielder and probably knows that and isn't going to demand every day at bats down there in Texas. Um, so I just, I, I love Oscar Colas personally. I think he's going to be a good major league player and I am glad that there's a path to at bats for him. And I think AJ Pollock might've been a roadblock in the way of that. No. Yeah. Important. I guess the counterpoint to that, which I, I'm not even sure I believe, but I, I think is the counterpoint is this is a quote unquote championship season. Like this is a big prove it year in your championship window where if things go poorly now, where do you go from here? And you're relying on 
a rookie without much backup behind him. And that's very, very hard to do for a team that has a lot of question marks elsewhere. Somebody like Houston can do it with Jeremy Pena last year because you have stability around him in the lineup and on the field. The White Sox don't know who is going to be in their lineup because they don't know if their lineup can stay healthy and they don't know who in their lineup is going to bounce back and who's not going to. So it's like, it's just adding another question mark into a team that I want to be confident can be a contender. And that is the frustrating part of it for me. But I think certainly as well, from like a baseball perspective, you want Oscar Colas getting at bats. Um, here are the additions. Uh, some of these other, all, the rest of those guys, kind of minor. We talked Cueto. We talked to Brayu. We talked to Pollock. I was big in the bring Josh Harrison back uh, camp. I liked his time with the White Sox, but him and Elvis Andrus, uh, you know, flip of the coin for me. I think they both do a lot of the same things really well. Uh, additions. The White Sox signed Andrew Benintendi to a club record, five-year, $75 million contract. Embarrassing that that's the record, but is the record nonetheless. Um, and then Mike Clevenger, of course, the one-year $12 million deal, as well as that $3 million contract to Elvis Andrus. The deal with the Clevenger thing for me is what we said about that depth, right? Like you could have signed Adam Duvall and Michael Waka for less money then you signed Mike Clevenger for. So like he better be worth it if he was the reason that you didn't add depth elsewhere. Uh, the news does come out today. Mike Clevenger will not be punished by Major League Baseball. So after a lot of uh, question marks regarding his status for the season, he's going to be the fifth starter, at least on opening day, barring any injury. Um, and now it's just, can he pitch well? Because he also is a guy coming off of injuries, both with his arm and his knee. Um, but obviously I think we both agree that the Andrew Benintendi signing was everything that the White Sox needed coming into this off season. Yeah. Uh, about Clevenger, he did make the comment today that he feels healthier than he has in a couple of years at this point in spring training, that shape of his life. <laughs> so it certainly sounds to me like Clevenger is feeling good. Um, and I'm not going to comment about any of the allegations or anything, but from a baseball perspective, it's definitely a good thing that the White Sox will have him on the field um, because I was very skeptical of their starting pitching depth, uh, especially with the idea of him being out. But it sounds like they're going to have him, um, so that is good. Um, regarding Benintendi, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Benintendi was exactly what they needed, a left-handed bat who can play outfield and play outfield well, who will allow Eloy Jimenez to DH more than he is in the outfield. I think that was huge. Um, and that does not mean that Eloy Jimenez is never going to play outfield. I think he will a good amount. Uh, I think Gavin Sheets will also still have games in the outfield. But getting another guy who can play outfield well and give Eloy what he needs, which is to play primarily at DH, I think is huge. Um, and Benintendi obviously experienced working with Pedro Grifol down in Kansas City uh, and coming off an all-star season. I think it was a great signing for the White Sox. Loved it at the time, and I still love it now. Okay, so those were the surface-level signings, departures, all of your typical free agency uh, nonsense. But then uh, the news drops, I believe it was middle of January. Uh, Liam Hendricks is battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
uh, has been in spring training and throwing and being Liam Hendricks and like just kind of being around the team and saying, Oh yeah, I'll be fine, mate. And stuff like that. But, uh, it does add him to the departures list for me because right now it is a question mark. If he will be on the field and on the mound pitching and when that timeline is like things are bigger than baseball for him right now. And he's dealing with his health. And while he does that, you can't rely or count on having him, which is just a huge, huge blow for a bullpen that was excited to get Garrett crochet back. But now it loses Liam Hendricks. doesn't really have a closer and perhaps the biggest transaction or a move of the offseason came not on the field, but on the front step. And it is Pedro Grifol is in. Tony Larusa is out. Frank Menachino is out. And uh, Pedro bringing in his entire coaching staff with him. Uh, I want your take on this. I don't even know if I've asked you about this directly, but how much do you buy in? And I know you weren't a LaRusa guy, but how much do you buy in to the idea of a new coaching staff and a new manager being the key to unlocking this White Sox team? Look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Tony LaRusa was the reason the White Sox underachieved last year. Um, I think he was a reason that they underachieved, but I'm not going to say he was the reason Uh, There is a certain level of responsibility that's on all these players that underperformed. Maybe the training staff is partially to blame for not keeping guys on the field for the programs that they had. I don't buy in that, but that's Um, another podcast because I think (laughs) I think a lot of these guys and and you see this with athletes all over the place. But like the guys that don't stay healthy, especially the guys that have soft tissue problems, it's in how they train. How they train themselves, what they eat, how they take care of their body, how much they care in the offseason. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that there are repeat offenders and other guys that manage to play 155 games every year around the league without having many issues. So I, I think that that is a, a player, a, a reflective of the player more than it is a training staff because the White Sox did fire their training staff. And they still got everybody hurt the next year. So uh, that's more of an individual thing, but carry on. Uh, regardless, I think that the manager's job, one of the manager's jobs is to put his players in the best position to win baseball games. And I just do not think that we saw much of that with Tony LaRusa last year, whether it was his on-field decisions. Obviously, everyone wants to talk about the intentional walk to Trey Turner in the middle of the at bat, I what was it a three one count that everyone was talking or a one and one two, two count walk one and two count to Trey Turner and he walked him, and that happened multiple times I believe where he had two strikes on a hitter and just put him on base and it was just baffling for everyone. Um, there was that there was the whole idea of you know just a clicky locker room and Tony was never very outspoken he was always just like well you know we're gonna you know, deal with stuff internally and, and all that stuff. There were (laughs) right mumbling. There were clips of him falling asleep in the dugout during games. And it's like, he just never was a guy that I looked at him and said like, yeah, this guy's a leader. He's going to round up these guys and he's going to get them ready to win the game tonight. And with Pedro Griffol, I see that. I think the primary thing that Pedro has talked about is game readiness. He's talked about how, you know, we're not going to win every game but I can promise you we're going to come to play every night. 
and he's talked about how you can't you can't win a championship in spring training, but you can lose one. Um, and I just I see it a lot more with Pedro stuff that I didn't see with Tony, and I think that's going to have a big impact on these guys. Well, pa- yeah, Pedro's saying all the right things, and you have to prove it and you have to show it. Uh, but certainly passes and checks the boxes of just like what White Sox fans were hoping to hear about their manager. But I view Tony Larusa as a sponge that came into this organization and just sucked the fun right out of it as quickly as possible. Uh, and things were afloat for 2021. And then you very quickly uh, just ran out uh, of, of all the fun. Uh, he very quickly made everything about himself, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally was always the, the story. There was always some controversy and just like he was asleep in the dugout, it felt like the team was like asleep on the field. Like It's like that you're in T-ball and it's the fifth inning and you want to go home and the sun's on you, you're dragging your feet, thinking about what your mom brought you for a post-game snack or a juice box or whatever afterwards. Like, that's what it felt like watching the White Sox. That's what I felt like they were thinking out there. It was like, well, can't wait to go home. Like, let you well, trudge my feet out here and play another baseball game. They were not like they had no life in them and having a guy like Tony at manager when that was how they were playing on the field, I think really hurt them. And what they needed was a Pedro Graffol, a guy that will be a spark plug, uh, smack him in the rear end, say, all right, let's go. And that's not acceptable and figure it out quicker. Like slumps happen, but how do you recover out of those? That will be the test for Pedro Graffol with the White Sox and potentially uh, their biggest move of the offseason question mark that brings us to the question Noah an overall underwhelming offseason for the White Sox we've seen James Fagan give the offseason an F we've seen people upset about it on the Twitterverse you and me no different what was your favorite move of the offseason very quickly everyone's going to talk about Benintendi from a player's side but Overall, my favorite move was Pedro Grifol. I think not just Pedro Grifol. I think the whole coaching staff overhaul, uh, getting Frank Menachino out of there, bringing in Jose Castro, a guy who came from Atlanta, um, who if the White Sox could model their offensive approach after the Atlanta Braves, I think that would be a great thing. Um, Getting Chris Johnson up here, who's had a lot of success with some guys down in Charlotte, giving him a chance to work with some of these major league hitters. yeah, I, I like the new coaching changes. Um, I like all the moves that they made on the coaching front. I think it can't be understated how much of an impact that's going to have on these guys, just their approach to the game and how ready they are to play. Well, I will say my favorite move was Andrew Benintendi because if if you could give me 26 of them, I would uh, of Andrew Benintendi, I would be very, very happy with the roster. I think he's a very rootable uh, he plays very hard, does the little things the right way. Him and Elvis Andrus both are like, those are the kind of guys that I want on this team. But I will say wouldn't my have favorite... a very good pitching staff. If you had yeah, 26 yeah, right? Benintendis. My, uh, my favorite move is actually on the pitching staff. Uh, and it is what the White Sox did with their bullpen this offseason, because it, it was something that nobody's talking about. People are actually, I, I've seen people making fun of it yeah, because these are names that nobody knows. But the White Sox have uh, acquired four guys, Gregory Santos, Franklin German, 
uh, Nicholas Padilla and Nick Avila as four guys either through the Rule 5 draft, through claiming them off waivers, through trading for a bucket of balls. They brought in four high-level AAA relief pitchers that could have an impact on this team because they have good stuff, a chance to work with Ethan Katz, and can impact their big league club. And the reason I like this so much is not because I think this is the difference that puts the White Sox over the top or makes them a World Series contender, but this is what they should have been doing all along. I love Kendall Graveman, and I love Liam Hendricks, and I like Aaron Bummer when he's on the field and when he's healthy. But the White Sox have poured so much money into their bullpen. They're paying Joe Kelly a lot of money. They're paying Jacob Diekman a good amount of money. Like they're paying relief pitchers with holes at second base, question marks in the pitching rotation. We don't know if they have outfield depth. Like they've done this thing kind of backwards. And I think their, their team as a whole would have looked very differently in these contention windows had their money gone to Kyle Schwarber instead of Kendall Graveman relief pitchers. And if they would have done this sooner, that's where we would be. So I do like this turnaround. I think some of these guys, Nick Avila specifically, very, very interesting to me as somebody I think could be very good for the club this year. And we'll talk about him a little bit more with Michael Suero later in the podcast. Noah, what was your least favorite move of the offseason? There I guess you could say the lack of moves, but was there one that you just like weren't a fan of? I think, I mean, the Mike Clevenger, the money that's on that deal, obviously the drama off the field that you don't want to be dealing with at this time of year. Like it, it just is like a kind of a, a bad taste in your mouth signing right before the season to not to be dealing with this drama. That has to be like the big negative, right? Yeah, I would agree. Um, I liked the Mike Clevenger signing and I still like Mike Clevenger, the baseball player. I think that the, I I was one of the people on Twitter that was very much in the, in the camp of this was the right move rather than bringing back Johnny Cueto. Now, when the allegations and all that stuff came out, that makes it a different story. And like you said, you know, MLB came back today and said that he is not going to be disciplined um, and that's fine. So this whole incident maybe is not an issue anymore with the team, but it's just kind of a a distraction, a dark cloud kind of hanging over him, an asterisk, if you will, with him entering the season. And it's just something that the White Sox didn't need. Coming off of a really disappointing 2022, they needed to put a team on the field that was just distraction-free, ready to play baseball, and ready to prove people wrong that are negative on them. Well, some Rick Hahn said, too, in his thing was like, the reason we liked Mike Clevenger and we wanted to, to bring him in here was because he was one of those guys he viewed as having a chip on his shoulder of like, he had something to prove. This is a locker room of guys with something to prove. Like, so that fit makes sense to me. But you don't want to be in April dealing with somebody's off-the-field drama like that and especially not when you're trying to win back the fan base and and get people to buy in and trust you a little bit more. And uh, the Twitter world, very unhappy with, you know, how the White Sox have handled things. And certainly over the last couple months, whether they did or did not know about the allegations, they could have done their due diligence more with Mike Clevenger to avoid having this situation cloud their spring training. But here we are and, and a very, very, you know, valid criticism of the team to be like, there were plenty of other options that could have made $12 million and come and pitched for you, but you got the one that happens to be the off the field problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Rick Hahn even said himself that there were some maturity issues with Clevenger at the time that they knew about. And so he called it a calculated risk. I would say, regardless of the situation, regardless of how he performs, it was probably a risk that was not worth taking. Um, but at this point, all we can hope for is that Mike Clevenger rebounds and has a good season on the field, puts up good numbers, and that Mike Clevenger, the baseball player, makes the signing worth it for the White Sox. So the big question that I don't even know if we have time for is, are the White Sox improved after this offseason? And, and I've been in the no category for months now, but I think I've sort of adapted my stance on this, um, just thinking about recording this podcast to, I don't think so, but you don't really know because so much of this team is reliant on these comebacks. But what I will say is that they are, so like, are they improved? I don't know. Depends on how these guys perform. That's, that's, you know, the ultimate point there, but they are on paper less of a surefire contender going into this season than we thought they were going into last season. And because of that, I'm not happy with how things went because we went into last season saying, well, they're going to win the division. Like they should make the playoffs. No problem. How far can you go? And things went poorly. And I wanted the white Sox to double down to get back to a spot where we are like, okay, here we go. We fixed it. Now we're back to prove people wrong. And they didn't. And, And so I am less confident about them right now than I was 365 days ago, this time of year. And that is a problem to me. And I think undeniable for White Sox fans. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I will, I will say that the White Sox bringing back Elvis Andrus helps in my book. I think that's going to be a big addition. It helps with morale. It helps. But are they improved? I don't know, but because Noah, Andrus Noah, was with listen, them last year. Listen, listen, Elvis Andrus was signed to a one-year, $3 million deal. He had a great two months with the White Sox. I like the player. I'm happy he's back. He is not a difference maker. Like, their win or loss record will not be determined by Elvis Andrus being at second base versus Romy Gonzalez. And so, like, I, I do think it is a little bit silly to go from upset, saying this is an F off season, like a lot of people were, to forgiving them for signing a second baseman to a $3 million contract at 37 years old or whatever. Like we have to put it into perspective of, we like the player. We like what he might be able to do on the field. They still didn't do enough and we can't let them off the hook for that. Oh no, I'm not, I'm not forgiving them. I'm still disappointed with the off season. I, I think uh, one of my primary concerns was starting pitching depth and the fact that Clevenger is going to be available, I think does help. Um, Cause before we were looking at Davis Martin being a regular in the rotation. And then after that, who knows, but now you've got Davis Martin who maybe you can trust him to step in if there's some injuries. Um, and you've got a couple other guys in Charlotte that you might be uh, okay with putting out there, but um Clevenger being available certainly helps. And I do think Andrus being a veteran presence on the infield is going to help. But if you're asking me to give a grade for the White Sox offseason, I would probably put it at like a C minus. Um, I think way too nice. You are I think being it could way have been worse. Too nice. I definitely think it could have been better. And to answer the original question of whether or not the White Sox are improved. I don't know. I really don't F. know. Then it's an F. 
If you don't know, it's an F because this is your championship window. If you don't know if the White Sox are better, it's a failure of an offseason because this was the time to spend the money. And, and the money was spent. We spend it on Kendall Gray. Like, I don't want to hear that from Rick Hahn or White Sox fans. Look at the other teams. The San Diego Padres are spending money because now is their opportunity and they're going to get it. The Philadelphia Phillies lost in the World Series after being so close and they didn't say, nice, our group is good enough. Let's go get it next year. They went out and signed Trey Turner and they said, we want more. Like now was the time that you said and identified in a press conference, we have to win back the trust of our fans. And then you did the same old crap that you've been doing for 20 years. And that is my, why it is a big old F right at the top. I might even add a minus and circle it and write, see me after class, Rick. I need to talk to you about something like that. This is so frustrating for me because it's like, even if things go well this year, are you in a spot where they're like, are we, is anybody confident that they're going to spend money and add and like finally put the chips all in? If you have to ask the question, if a quote unquote world series contender is better than the 81 and 81 bull crap they gave us last season, then they failed to do their job over the last three months, in my opinion. Well, let me ask you this. Let's look at the Houston Astros. Okay. They just won the World Series. Are they better? They lost Justin but Verlander, it, it, the no, guy that won the Cy Young Award. But last it's different year. because the Astros have a history of one, their in their promotions within the organization work. The guys that they bring up and develop hit. And two, you've already won. Like you're already, you're at your peak and you're trying to maintain for as long as possible. But how silly will the White Sox look if we made all of this hype about the prospects, trust the prospects and Moncada and, and Robert and Kopech and Eloy and Cease and the list goes on and on and on. And you get one playoff win in the DS. I guess you had the COVID playoff win, but you don't even win a playoff series. And that was what we hyped it up for, for one home playoff game. That was a win or two, like whatever, like that would just be such an anticlimactic finish to this thing where the Astros have been doing it for six years. And when you're doing it for that long, a lot of these teams do a bit of a reset where they take one or two years of like, well, we're going to let that guy walk, that guy walk, develop our own guys. And then we'll go spend the money again, two more years from now. And we'll be right back at the top. So I think it's, I think it's a different, standard that you have to hold them to because they haven't proven themselves yet. Yeah, I don't want to go too deep into this because we can talk about it all night, but I guess I'm just wondering what moves would you have liked to see them make this offseason that would have changed that grade for you? What who which free agent that was available or which player that was traded would you have done that would have moved that grade from an F to a passing grade? Yeah, I I mean I would have for starters, I would have done something at second base because second base is one, a hole on your team that you needed to fill. And two, not something that was like blocking a prospect. You can sell me on the, well, Oscar Colas needs at bats argument for right field, but there was no reason not to bring in a second baseman. They could have gone and signed a number of guys. You could have played in the shortstop market and moved somebody over. You could have played for a third baseman and moved somebody over. Does Tim Anderson want to play second base? Probably not. Sorry, dude. Don't care. Have fun. You're under contract. 
Like there, there was a move to be made to go and get the elite players that were honestly not all that unrealistic in terms of their AAV and what it would have done to the White Sox cap on the infield to move some pieces around. I would have added more depth to your outfield. I would have added one or two more starting pitching, starting pitching options where I felt good about, hey, if Giolito doesn't bounce back or if Lance Lee has another knee injury or if Mike Clevenger doesn't pitch a single inning for the White Sox, we have a couple notable guys that we can go to. You and I did this a couple of weeks ago. We looked at the Toronto Blue Jays depth chart and we looked at the Blue Jays starting pitching And there are nine guys that you could feel good about being a number three in your rotation. Like that, that is the amount of depth that the Toronto Blue Jays have on their team. And so that's who you're competing with. To me, I don't have to get into specifics because we got one more thing to talk about. uh, And I want to make sure that we can go and get to Michael Suero here at, at a reasonable time. But Noah, if you have been doing what I've been doing, which is sitting down watching spring training baseball as much as possible to get your fill in, You've noticed the MLB rule changes that have been into effect at spring training. And I feel very passionately about these. I don't know where you stand or what side of the aisle you are on. But for those of you in the baseball world, if you're not a huge baseball fan or if you've been living under a rock during the past couple weeks, here are the new rules to Major League Baseball. Number one is the pitch timer, a pitch clock that enforces every 30 seconds between batters 15 seconds between pitches with bases empty, 20 seconds between pitches with runners on. So that's how long the pitchers have to throw the ball. Batters have to acknowledge the pitcher by that time that clock hits eight seconds. If they fail to do so, it's an automatic strike. If the pitchers don't get the pitch off in time, it is an automatic ball. And then there are the disengagement rules, which uh, I believe you uh, get a- two two disengagements per plate appearance for pickoffs for a pitcher Um, Uh, to specify with the pitcher side of things. If a pitcher is coming out of the windup, once they begin their initial step back, that counts. Um, And for the stretch, they have to lift their leg coming out of their stretch before the clock hits zero. So they don't have to release the ball by then. They just have to basically begin their motion toward home plate. So that is the rule that, Major League Baseball implemented to try and speed up the pace of play. Then we have the ban of the defensive shifts or the defensive shift limits where a minimum of four players must be on the infield with at least two on either side of second base. So you have to do two and two. You have to have four guys feet in the dirt that takes away from the second baseman heading into shallow right field, the shortstop moving to second base, and then the third baseman having the entire left side of the infield to himself. But it also has been worked around, as we saw with Joey Gallo at the plate the other day of using the outfielders to your advantage. And then the most insignificant one is the bigger bases to encourage base stealing. So these are all different, but I think we need to really focus on the pitch timer here. Do you have a thought on the pitch timer? Because this is the one that I feel really passionately about. So I'm going to let you kind of get your piece in here and then I'll let you know my thoughts. I do have a thought. Um, I like the purpose of the pitch timer. I like the impact that it has had on games so far. Um, I read yesterday the Blue Jays, and uh, I can't remember who they were playing, but I believe the final score of the game was 18 to 5. The Blue Jays scored 18 runs in that game, and the game went three hours and four minutes. It was just over three hours, which is a pretty standard major league game. 
my concern with the pitch timer is I don't want violations of the pitch clock deciding games. And we've already seen that happen some in spring training. Um, so there's a couple of things that I think they should consider. Um, one is increasing the clock to 20 seconds all the time, not just with runners on base. And another is, I think this eight seconds, the batter has to be acknowledging the pitcher rule is leaving a little bit too much room for the umpires to make an impact. Um, I also think that it is just, I don't know. I, I don't see how that is fair to the hitter. I well, think the pitch I, well, clock. I don't, I don't get that one either because it doesn't speed up the game having the hitter look at the pitcher. Like the pitch still has to be thrown in the same amount of time. So I guess that's for the pitcher to have to be acknowledged. But it that does feel like a little bit of a weird thing to be hanging your hat on if you're MLB. Yeah, and Lance Lynn made the comment before his first start that he thinks the pitch clock is a big advantage for the pitchers. And I think so far that has proven to be true. I mean, we've seen... The first the first incident uh, was in that Red Sox Braves game a couple days into spring training where the bases were loaded with two outs in the ninth inning of a tie game. And the batter was called for not not stepping in the box in time. He was in the box, but he wasn't looking at the pitcher when the clock hit the eight second mark. And the umpire called it a violation, which was the third strike. And that was the end of the ball game because they don't play extra innings in spring training. And so I'm a little bit worried about things like that happening in the regular season. And I think it's going to be not good for the game if you have games in the regular season or, God forbid, the playoffs being decided by pitch clock violations and stuff like that, especially when the hitter is in the box already. Listen, yeah, I think if there is one change, it is you abandon the rule in the ninth inning. I, I mean, I think if it ends an inning in like the seventh and you've got the bases loaded and two outs and you get a you get a pitch clock violation, tough luck, like get in the box. That's well, my opinion. But like the ninth I inning doesn't see... necessarily mean this well, is where the game is decided. Well, Some games are decided I, early. No, I know. But so but that's my point. I, I, I can make the case of a ninth inning, building the tension, building the drama in the ninth of let's abandon this thing and let it kind of play out that Bryce Harper at bat in the NLCS, I believe, was just the perfect example of a long time between pitches where the buzz just started to go up, 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 and then boom, the home run. But yeah, if it happens earlier than that, to me, it's an adapter die. It's, you know, get in the box, learn the timing of it, get your routine down quicker. I've got some numbers here. Padres Mariners, the opener of spring training, there were 16 hits, 25 base runners, five runs scored. The time of the game, two hours and 30 minutes. 16 hits, 25 base runners, five runs scored, two hours and 30 minutes. Game five of the World Series, there was 15 hits, 26 base runners, five runs scored. Time of the game, three hours and 57 minutes. That is a one hour and 27 minute difference between two, two games that had the same amount of runs, the same amount of base runners, and basically the same amount of hits. And that is why I love the MLB pitch clock. I think it is a great, great innovation to this game uh, that has gotten a little bit stagnant and a little bit boring for the casual fan. If you're a baseball lover and you watch baseball all the time, it's not going to affect you. And that's fine. 
but allow other people who aren't the diehard fan to enjoy the game as well. Because I'll be honest, I don't love sitting down all the time and watching a West Coast baseball game at 9.30 p.m., knowing that it probably won't get done till like one in the morning sometimes. But it is nice to be able to watch an hour and a half of baseball, get five innings in and, you know, really consume a big chunk of the game. It, it makes it fast paced, always something happening. That is the recipe in modern day sports where like the time of play between batted balls, too, has been cut down where it's like every two minutes, there's another batted ball in play, which is just a crazy, crazy, crazy. Plus, did we watch the video of uh, the pitcher throwing an entire inning before the one pitcher threw, a, threw one pitch in the playoffs? And like, this is kind of like the baseball that we've been living in. I love this. And, and I'm sick and tired of seeing the people on online moaning about it, being like, well, we don't want stuff to, to cost us games. Like I said, get in the box. You don't care how long games are. That's fine. Other people do. That's the feedback Major League Baseball has gotten. People care. They don't want to watch four hours of baseball. They don't want to wait five minutes until the next semi-important thing happens. They want less home runs, less walks, more balls in play, more action, more things that are appealing to the eye. I am having so much fun watching spring training with the pitch clock. I can't wait to see it in regular season action. I think it's a great, great addition to, to baseball. And if you look at the, uh, I think most of the broadcasts showed this stat, uh, one of the first couple games of spring training, but they actually had the pitch clock in the minor leagues last year. So they tried it out there first and they showed the time of the game from last year to this year. Uh, they also showed runs per game. Oh, this was from 2021 to 22 in the minors. So 21 without the pitch clock, 22 with. They showed the average time of game. They showed runs per game, all of the offensive stats and stuff. And they were all the same except for the time of game. So on a large scale, you're not really talking about something that's going to alter how the game is played. There's not going to be you know, more outs because this favors the pitcher. There's not going to be anything like that. Now, we saw Max Scherzer the other day try and mess with it. And it uh, was beautiful. And it was beautiful. That adds was, gamesmanship to baseball. That was as However, good. MLB however. did issue a statement after the game saying, essentially, that if a pitcher tries to do what Max Scherzer did, they will be called for a balk. Okay. And well, Max Scherzer actually I... did try it again the next inning. They did call him for a balk. And then the league issued a statement later that night saying that, if a pitcher doesn't allow the batter to get set or whatever, then it's going to be considered a quick pitch, which is going to be called a balk. So that I pitchers will with. not be able to do with what Scherzer did before. But he didn't. But... He didn't necessarily do that whole thing. I loved him get just staying set. That's what he was doing. He was staying set between pitches, and he just used the entire twenty second pitch clock of him just holding the ball, and. That's pretty fun. <laughs> like that, that is another weird way of innovating this thing and making it entertaining to watch the gamesmanship between two people. But that is Major League Baseball's rule changes. We'll have to see how these ML, these major leaguers adapt. I saw Brett Phillips and a couple other people said in the minor leagues, we adapted really well. There were hardly any violations by like a month into the year. And uh, yeah, it was better for the game. So we will see how these major league players adapt. And hopefully we're not getting two or three violations every regular season game come April like we are right now. Uh, 
But more action coming, more fun baseball coming, certainly some fast pace of play and some quick games coming. That is uh, all we've got right now. But we do have to talk MLB prospects and White Sox prospects because MLB.com dropped the top 30 prospect list for who is up and coming, who is falling off a little bit. Are there surprises in the White Sox farm system? All of that coverage, we've got it with Michael Suero from uh, Sox on 35th joining us in a moment. So let's take it over to Michael Suero and Prospect Talk right now. All right, it is Prospect Time and it is interview time. And we now welcome on a guest and our very first guest on the Put It In The Board podcast. So you can put this on the board and put it in the history books because uh, Michael Suero joins us now, contributor for Sox on 35th. A lot of the work he does over there for that incredible site is revolving around this topic, the farm system, the prospects in the White Sox organization. And with the new top 30 list coming on, uh, coming out from MLB.com rather, Michael is here to break down this top 30, make sense of it all and who we can be looking out for in 2023. So Michael, for starters, thank you for coming on the podcast as our very first guest. Well, thank you so much for having me. I uh, am expecting a commemorative plaque coming in the mail anytime soon to uh, recognize this moment. Uh, But uh, no, I appreciate you guys asking me to come on as your first guest. Uh, Can't imagine how many people you asked before me, but either way, I'm honored. Believe it or not, I do think you are our first option. Uh, We we were kind of going over some potential topics. Noah, you you were just like, hey, I've got a guy. If we're talking prospects, I've got a guy. So my man, my man. Well, I appreciate it, guys. So this uh, this top 30 prospect list is out um, and some surprises on this list, I think everybody would say. So uh, just a quick rundown. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. MLB.com slash prospects slash White Sox, the top 30. Uh, I'll run through it real quick. We're going one to 30. This is in order. Rapid fire. It's Montgomery, Colas, Ramos, Schultz, Burke, Rodriguez, Mena, Sosa, Paulette, Cannon, Burroughs, Vera, Cespedes, Thompson. This is really bad podcasting, by the way. Just running through a list, <laughs> rapid fire. Simas, Kelly, Veras, Kath, McDougal, Avila, Santos, Miese, Stever, Sprinkle, Schweitzer, Tatum, Herman, Chapelli, Sanchez, Perez, Sheesh. All right, uh, Noah, I'll go to you here first off the bat. When you look at that top 30, what was kind of like the first thing that stood out to you looking at this list? I, I, we all kind of expected Colson Montgomery, Oscar Colas, these guys at the top we knew, uh, but what, like, anybody surprised you that they were even in there? Yeah, uh, the first name that stuck out to me was seeing Sean Burke there at the number five spot. Um, I... I like Sean Burke and I I've talked about him some as a potential option to make the major leagues this year. Um, and if the white Sox do end up needing a starter because of injuries for whatever reason, I did like Sean Burke as a potential option. Um, but I always thought that he was kind of a lower ranked prospect. I did not really expect to see him making the top five. Um, so I'm very surprised by that but I think it's an encouraging sign that the people who are evaluating the talent are starting to see that there's talent there. I mean, I think he, for sure, you could say like pretty safely, he's the most major league ready starting pitching arm in this system. I mean, we all like Noah Schultz. We all like Christian Mena, some of these other guys that have high upside, Peyton Plett even, but 
Sean Burke is the guy collegiate arm that they have now uh, had a chance to look over for a full year. Now, I believe it's been over a full calendar year and finally starting Mm -hmm. to see him knocking on the doorstep. So Michael, that does bring uh, to my first question to you. Noah mentioned Sean Burke. We might see him in the major leagues this year. Now we know a couple of these guys, as I mentioned, Oscar Colas might be the everyday right fielder. Lenin Sosa, we all expect to get some time at second base. There are some guys here that are kind of shoe-ins to get major league time, but who else in this top 30 do you think has a legitimate chance to get some some meaningful playing time with the big league club in 2023? Yeah, I mean, Sean Burke would be the first prospect I would mention there as well. Uh, Just how quickly he shot up through the rankings in his first full season is pretty impressive. Um, You know, he made his triple-A debut, got a, a two games, I think, at that level. And I, I think that uh, he will be probably that sixth or seventh starting pitcher that they're going to use this season for sure. Um, outside of that, another guy that made his, de- he made his debut last season, Carlos Perez, he's probably the next man up in terms of the catching depth chart. You know, that, that's, an in, that's a position where you could see injuries relatively easily. Obviously, Yasmani Grandal missed some time with some injuries last year, and that's why Perez made his debut. Um, I definitely think he's a guy that could get some meaningful playtime this season. And then you've got a couple of relief pitchers. You've got guys like Franklin German. You've got um, Nick Avila, our, our Rule 5 draft pick, uh, Gregory Santos. These guys are all fighting for roles in the bullpen. So I think those are definitely some guys that you could see get a lot of action this season. Those guys um, are, yeah, those guys yeah. are really fascinating to me too. I want to follow up on those names because the, Rick Hahn and the White Sox did something they really haven't done. Uh, and we'll probably talk about it. You've probably already heard it by now if you're listening all the way to the <laughs> podcast. But talk yeah. about what they did with their bullpen depth this past offseason. Something very unique where they kind of took the approach of some waiver claims, some trades for you know future cash or player to be named later, whatever it is to acquire some of these guys that were going to get DFA'd by other teams. And now you have Franklin German. You have, uh, obviously, Nick Avila. You have... Uh, Gregory Santos, Nicholas Padilla from the Cubs. You've got a couple names here that like could make a run at major league bullpen time. Mm-hmm. Which of those guys, if you just had to pick one, do you think has the best chance to break camp with the team as that last guy in the bullpen? So, I mean, just based on circumstance, my money would be on Nick Avila, uh, mainly because he was a rule five draft pick. You know, he's not a guy that they can just send to the minors. So if he doesn't crack the roster, he does have to get returned to his original team. Um, And I I think that I don't think they would have taken him with that draft pick if they didn't think he had a good shot at cracking the roster, too. Especially, you know, we've got he's got ties to our pitching staff. He's got good stuff and he, he. did show a lot of success at the minor league level. Um, I, I think that he's probably the front runner at this point, and I, that would be where my money is. And I, I think he's an interesting prospect too. He's got good stuff. He's got that uh, that fastball slider combination that this pitching staff loves. So I, I'm very curious to see him make his uh, make his White Sox debut this season. Just one of those guys that I think you you scratch your head, kind of wondering how he became available a one, one, four ERA at two levels last year in 55 innings. Uh, He's given a 60 grade fastball, 60 grade cutter and 55 grade control. So yeah, I mean, that's big league stuff that that'll play at the big league level. Noah, do you have any thoughts on 
those guys that I mentioned. I mean, Avila, obviously. I, I, how do you feel about a guy like Franklin German? Or we got to figure out how to say his last name first of all. That's a mystery. <laughs> that. Yeah, uh, one thing that I've noticed, um, aside from the fact that it's a little bit different than the White Sox have normally done business in the past, is that all of these guys are kind of similar in their profile. They're all guys that have big arms. They throw hard. They have good breaking stuff, but they've struggled with control in the minor leagues. And the whole the whole thing that they need to figure out is how to harness the stuff that they have. And I think that's by design. I think Ethan Katz has looked at these guys and said, I, I like his stuff. I know how to work with him. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that all of these guys that have been hired kind of fit that same profile. Um, or acquired rather, not hired, but um, I, I'm excited to see Ethan Katz work with all of these guys. And obviously with Avila um, specifically, he came from the Giants where Ethan Katz also came from. So he he has experience working with him in the past. I'm excited to see him be able to work with these guys again. Well, I'll tell you one other thing I'm just noticing now, which uh, very like can't believe it didn't stick out to me sooner. The other thing all these guys have in common is that they're all right handed. And I think you look at the White Sox pitching staff, and uh, I see a lot of RHPs uh, on that depth chart right now. You've got Aaron Bummer, Garrett Crochet coming back from the Tommy John surgery. But, I mean, we were sitting last season with Tanner Banks and Bennett Sousa in the bullpen because we were just strapped as an organization for left-handed pitching. And yet, who are the pitching acquisitions that the White Sox made? Well, at least on the the major league level, it's Mike Clevenger, a right-handed pitcher. And at this kind of triple a four a major league level it's a bunch of right-handed pitchers so uh michael i was going to ask you about what areas of this farm system as a whole are like stronger or weaker but like outside of noah schultz where is all the left-handed pitching like that has to be something that is a concern right now no yeah nope this this farm system definitely has a lack in that area that's probably the weakest spot and I think that's why Noah Schultz was a priority coming into this draft. You know, they they paid over a slot to get him. He was very strongly committed to college before the White Sox snagged him in the first round. And I think they saw him, they saw that left-handed, high upside pitching potential, and they made him priority number one because they knew that that's where they were weak in the farm system, and they knew he was he had as high of upside as anyone in this draft. So it just seemed like a natural fit for this farm system. So I think it's definitely something they're going to have to continue to add. I'm surprised they didn't do a bit more of it this off season, but I think Noah Schultz was step one in realizing that they had a uh, lack of depth in the area. Where are they strong in your opinion? Like, I mean, it's not a particularly strong farm system as it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not very high ranking in relative to the rest of the league. Uh, but where, uh, if you had to just put a strength on this system, where is that for you? Oh, I'd say easily it's field. We have some really good prospects in that retrospect. First of all, Colson Montgomery. I mean, he's being ranked as high as top 15 by some outlets right now. He is just an absolute stud of a prospect. They, they believe he can stick at shortstop. So he is definitely classified in that middle infield spot. And even so, even if he can't stick there, he can move to second base as well, maybe play third base, but he is at the top of that list. But then you've got guys like Lenyon Sosa, who made that major breakout last year. He's a second baseman and shortstop. He's pretty much major league ready. I think he'll, some time in AAA will do him good this year, but he 
should be ready to compete for that starting second base job relatively soon. Um, you also have a guy in Jose Rodriguez, who was a big breakout guy the prior year. This year came, started the season relatively slowly, was, you know, he was hitting in double A, which is much more of a pitcher friendly league that, that league that uh, the Birmingham Barons are in. Uh, but towards the end of the season, before he broke his handmade bone and had his season cut short, he was on a tear for that final month, month and a half of the season where he found his power. He was hitting like no other. And he was he's a he's a good prospect to keep an eye on as well. Again, another second baseman slash shortstop guy. Um, then we got the biggest surprise of this prospect list, who I'm sure we'll get to later, Ryan Burrows. He is also a shortstop. He is extremely athletic. A ton of upside with him. And then uh, going down with uh, some depth, you got Yolbert Sanchez, who can probably play all over the field, but right now is mostly playing second base shortstop. So there's just so much depth at the middle and field position that they have right now. It's it's easily the strongest spot that they have. Yolbert Sanchez, a guy too, who like, I think he is your emergency, like in case of emergency, break glass and call him up to play second base, knowing he can play good defense. Um, Before we get to that mysterious man at number 11 on this list, (laughs) I do want to go back to Colson Montgomery because uh, I want to hear from each of you too. This is going to be the question that White Sox fans ask smart or not. It's going to start. I give it till Memorial day before this is a common topic. Can Colson Montgomery get big league time in 2023? I know he was a high school draft pick in 2021. It still feels like he's young. He is 21 years old. His 21st birthday passed uh, just a couple of weeks ago. He has done nothing but excel an 810 OPS at three different levels. Uh, did not play well at Birmingham, but very limited time up there. That's probably where he starts the 2023 season. Is there any way we see Colson Montgomery this year, or is that a little bit too premature? Noah, what do you think? As our good friend Rick Hahn says, I'm not going to say never. Um, <laughs> I would be surprised, personally. I, I think that the White Sox want to get another full season of Colson Montgomery in the minors, and uh, ideally they won't need him because Tim Anderson rebounds, stays healthy. Elvis Andrus, obviously, they would like him to stay healthy and play like he did at the end of last year. Um, I think a more realistic timeline for Montgomery is uh, competing for a roster spot next season. Um, but again, as Rick Hahn always says, sometimes these guys force the issue. And if Colson Montgomery absolutely rakes again, like he did last year, you may get to the end of the season where the White Sox need a little bit of an offensive boost. And they have this guy in AAA who's just tearing it up. And, they may decide to make that move. So I'm not going to say never, but personally I would be surprised if we see him in Chicago this season. Michael, that ditto from you over there, like that, that's kind of the consensus. Yeah, I, I don't think it's very likely. I mean, like Noah said, never say never. I mean, how many of us expected Lenin Sosa get to get called up from double a last season? So there's always a chance, but I just don't see a need to rush him, especially with the signing of Elvis Andrews. There's just so many current players ahead of him on the depth chart that a lot of things would need to go wrong, in my opinion, for them to have to make that move. And I don't think that they want to rush him either. I think that they want to make sure he is their top prospect. They don't want to mess with his development. They want to make sure they're doing it right with him. 
So I, I would be surprised now. I mean, he does have some things going for him. He is a much more advanced hitter than your typical uh, high school prospect. I mean, just just his plate discipline and his his pitch recognition is they're off the charts. And that's part of the reason why he's such a highly rated prospect. That's something a lot of high school prospects typically need to work on. So he is ahead of the curve in that in that particular stance. But I, I would still be surprised to see him up this year. I, I think that next year is much more likely. All right. So there you have it. Michael uh, Suero would be surprised if we see Colson <laughs> Montgomery. Noah thinks there's a chance. We don't know. Hopefully, I think everybody can agree. Hopefully, he's not needed this year. We're good. Uh, we've got the Romy Gonzalez hype train to get behind in 2023, <laughs> however you want to feel about that. But I will tell you what did surprise me while we're using that word and we're throwing it around. When I opened the Chicago White Sox top 30 prospects list, and I pride myself on uh, knowing who these guys are and pay attention to the box scores. And I think White Sox fans as a whole do a very good job of kind of knowing the ins and outs of the organization um, and, and really buying into these guys from a young age. But I start scrolling and I'm thinking I'm going to see Jared Kelly. I'm thinking I'm going to see Norhe Vera. I'm thinking Wes Kath has got to be up here, but no. At number 11, there is a guy by the name of Ryan Burroughs. And I said, who? And I think a lot of people <laughs> did a collective who when they saw Ryan Burroughs at number 11. So, Michael, who is Ryan Burroughs? What, what do I need to know about him? What do White Sox fans need to know about this guy heading into the year? And what should we expect? Yeah, Ryan Burroughs' name popping up at number 11, I think, surprised everyone. Um, so I'm a fan of Ryan Burroughs, first of all. I think he is a great prospect. I think they found a hidden gem with him. So he was signed for $75,000 out of Panama. So obviously he was not in the top international prospect circuit. Like he was not a name a lot of people really knew, um, really, unless you are deep into the White Sox prospects, like I am, obviously. Um, but he is, he's a guy, he's a 6'2", 180-pound shortstop, uh, 18 years old. He actually could have signed in 2021, but wanted to finish high school, so he waited a year. So got a good head on his shoulders. He's an extremely athletic shortstop. He went 12 for 12 in stolen bases in the Dominican League last year. Got a lot of range at the shortstop position. And he's got a lot of raw power in his swing, too. Um, he hit three home runs last year, but he's got a frame that can easily add more strength and he can already hit the ball pretty damn hard. So he's got, he's a guy with probably 2020 potential in him and he's an extremely exciting prospect. Well, if um, you he, leave he it, did, up, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, if you leave it up to the, to the 20 to 80 scale, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, but 50 is what they say is like average. That's like an average yeah. tool, right? Is that, is yeah. that accurate to say? That's, this is yeah, what, that's like you. It's a good enough tool to make it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, this is what MLB.com has at for him. Uh, at 18 years old, they have his hit tool 55, powers 50, run is 55, arm is 55, field is 50. So that's a guy that does just about all of it, average or above average. Uh, and if you can do all of that well, yeah, that'll play. Noah, did you know who this guy was? Because like I look at his stats, never played in the States, which I think is probably why like me and a lot of White Sox fans didn't know the name. He doesn't pop up on these box scores that we scroll through every night. 
Uh, yeah, the name sounds a little bit familiar, so I think I may have read something about him before, but uh, would I have guessed that we would see him in the top 15 on this prospects list? Uh, absolutely not. So I, I, what I could have told you coming in was that he was an international signing a year or two ago, and that's probably the extent of it. I, I couldn't have told you much about his background or even what position he played, so... I'm glad that I'm informed now because it sounds like this guy is going to be someone to definitely watch this year. Well, can we watch him? That's the question because, Michael, he's 18 and he will be 18 all the way through August is the information I'm getting on MLB.com. So where does a guy like that start? Is he going to be in the States this year? Like, do you have any sort of gauge for where we might see him? I think more like likely than not he will he will spend the season in the Arizona Complex League um you know they have been a little more aggressive with some of these prospects so it is possible that they want him to get a full season and start the year in low a Canapolis um I definitely wouldn't be shocked if they went that route um it all depends on how aggressive they want to be with his development but I think it's pretty certain that he will be in the states this year it's just a matter of is he going to be playing full season, or is he going to be more just in that Arizona complex? Okay. Well, I got uh, just one more game for you. And then uh, I guess like a little bit of a personal thing. There was a name on this rundown that we don't have to bring up yet, but it was probably a random name that you were like, okay, wonder why he's asking me about this guy specifically. (laughs) But uh, We'll get there in a minute. Before we do, I want to play a game bullish or bearish. So uh, this is buying stock in these prospects as many, Uh, teams are uh, as many card and memorabilia collectors out there are as well you're trying to predict a guy's value Uh, when you look at this top 30 group I want you to give me one guy uh, that you are bullish on and one guy you were bearish on somebody that you think you know could be next year's Sean Burke or Ryan Burroughs or these guys that are, are starting to shoot up the charts or shoot up uh, maybe even to the major leagues. And then one guy that you feel has just been a little bit too overhyped. So uh, I don't care whichever one of you guys goes first, if you both have a name in mind, but uh, yeah, uh, bullish bearish. Let me hear Where's my stock going? Uh, I can go ahead and start. Um, One guy that I really love and I loved him at the time when they drafted him last season. Uh, This guy is a, First round talent that the White Sox were able to get in the second round due to uh, coming off of Tommy John surgery. And if you haven't guessed it by now, that would be Peyton Pellette, the number nine prospect. Um, I think the guy has big league stuff. I think he's finally healthy uh, and he is going to take the minor leagues by storm this year. Um, I was watching a video of him throwing this offseason, uh, and it looked nasty. So I'm excited to see him in games this year. And uh, I think he's a candidate to be a fast riser. Um, and on the other end of things for me, I, it's unfortunate to say it, but I think Yoelki Cespedes is on his way down. Um, I liked the signing at the time. Uh, obviously, It's a familiar name to most people in baseball circles, as his brother was a pretty solid uh, MLB player for a few years. But Yoelki just has not played well. Um, He he signed with the White Sox a couple years ago, and people were kind of overhyping him because of the name. And he just hasn't really hasn't really done a whole lot for me to be excited about. Um, If he does end up turning into like a fourth outfielder here in the major leagues, I think I'd be thrilled with that, but I'm not expecting too much more than that at this point for him. 
Michael, you got anybody like one? Do you agree with those statements or do you want to put Noah in his place and say he's hating on Yoelki or, or uh, <laughs> anybody else that stands out to you either way for uh, bullish or bearish? No, uh, as unfortunate as it is, I do agree with what you said about Yolki Cespedes. Um, I, I think his ceiling right now is a fourth outfielder slash platoon outfielder. Um, I, I think he'll have a role in the majors. I do want to get make that clear. I think he's good enough defensively. He's got he's got good speed, and I think teams can have a use for him. And he does hit left handed pitching pretty well, but that can only lead to a short side of a platoon. In all honesty, he hasn't been able to hit right handed pitching well enough in the minors, and you know he he spent the entire season in Double A last year. Um, he got jumped by Oscar Colas, who started the season in high A, was also just brushing the rust off after not playing baseball for a couple of years. So the fact that, you know, he, he started at a lower level and finished in triple A while Yolke Cespedes just stayed afloat in double A, I think is right there is pretty telling. Um, I, I think he'll be a fourth outfielder in the majors, but I just, I agree. I just don't think he can be much more than that. But will he be a fourth um, outfielder with the White Sox? I mean, 25 years old, you're running out of time here. I, like, that would be my follow-up question. I mean, I could see him taking over that fourth outfield job as soon as next year, honestly. Like, I think he's got a fit with the current um, outfield depth chart. You know, you've got – now you've got two left-handed corner outfielders in – you know, Ben Attendee and Oscar Colas, and you don't really have a true backup center fielder. He's a guy that can play all three outfield spots and he can be that right-handed, you know, backup for those two left-handed options that we have starting. So I think there is a fit there as soon as next year to make the White Sox roster. We'll see. I think a lot depends on how he plays this season as well. Um, If he doesn't show any growth, maybe they don't want to, hand him the job and they want to bring an outside option in. But I think he's definitely at least in the conversation. That's Michael Suero, contributor for Sox on 35th on Yoelki Cespedes. Michael, who is your uh, fast riser, we'll call it, uh, that you are bullish on uh, for the 2023 season? Well, one of my favorite prospects this entire past season and still to this day is Christian Mina, who. I think has a strong case to be the top prospect in this farm system ahead of Noah Schultz, ahead of Norge Vera, Peyton Paulette. I think he has a case to be ahead of all of them in the rankings for two main reasons. One, his established success so far in the minor leagues is extremely impressive. When you look at what he did at just 19 years old in his first season in full season baseball, I mean, Coming into the season, he'd only pitched a little bit in the Arizona Complex League, and he didn't post the best results. His ERA was like in the sevens. So I, I think a lot of people expected him to repeat in the Arizona Complex League, but the White Sox saw something in him, and there were some advanced metrics to show that he was a little bit unlucky. He was putting up really good strikeout numbers and limiting his walks at that level too. So they saw enough to promote him, and he had a phenomenal season where he got up to double A and even held his own at, again, just 19 years old. This guy's got 
he usually sits in like the 92 to 93 range of fastball, but can touch as high as 96. And as he's you know maturing, adding some strength, he's been able to add some velocity to to that fastball. But his his main pitch is a hammer curveball that it it grades out as a 60 by most outlets. So it is a pretty impressive pitch. That is his out pitch. Um, that fastball curveball combination is pretty freaking good. And he's also got a slider and the change of better, at least average to his, uh, to his arsenal as well. And he's a guy, he struck out a lot of batters at more advanced levels than his age would dictate he should be in. And he even limited his walks relatively well throughout the season. So he's a guy I'm really excited about. I can't wait to see what he can do this season, probably starting in double a at only 20 years old. So there, there's a reason to be patient with him, but he's been up to the challenge at every promotion he's gotten. So I can't wait to see what he does in 2023. Yeah. To your point, turn 20 years old this December and just yeah. looking at his production on, on some of these generic numbers, obviously there's a lot more uh, metrics and projectable data to <clears> it, but uh, 104 innings with 126 strikeouts at three levels as a 19 year old kid is really, really impressive for young Christian Mina, Mena, another last name that I will have to put onto my list and investigate. But uh, last one here for you, Michael, because uh, I have a couple guys that are my own personal guys that I'm buying into. One of them we're not going to go into detail about. It's Declan Cronin. He's not in the top 30, so he doesn't belong on today's podcast. <laughs> but I did want to bring him up because I love watching him pitch. Another guy, Noah mentioned seeing Peyton Paulette throw this offseason. I saw the video of Declan Cronin, and I said, yeah, let's get him up here as quickly as possible. He's getting those Clay Holmes comps. But uh, this is a guy that uh, down here at number 26, Terrell Tatum is a guy that I personally am a big fan of, and I'm having a hard time seeing why he's this low. So Tatum was drafted uh, in the 2021 draft in the 16th round out of NC State. He was part of that NC State team that uh, made a run in the College World Series, I believe. They made it like all the way to the championship, something like that. Yep. He, he hit that big home run off Jack Leiter in the, the College World Series, but... 12 home runs and a 317 average with uh, 16 stolen bases, 966 OPS as a senior at NC State. The White Sox drafted him, and since he's been in the system, 835 OPS in 2021 and 2022 is an 820 OPS. Um, I look at his numbers as well. It, just a very high walk rate, a guy that gets, has gotten on base at over a 400, per, 400 clip in each of his two professional seasons, a left-handed bat, 23 years old, seems to have really good speed and above average fielder and his batting production has produced. So why are his 20 to 80 grades, a 45 hit tool and a 45 power tool? And why is he 26 in a weak White Sox system when he's done nothing but be productive in the minor league so far? Yeah, I, he put together a fantastic season last year. Um, I think there definitely could be a case for him to be ranked higher in this farm system. Um, I think it comes down to two separate things why he's not ranked higher. First of all, he was not a high pedigree draft pick coming in. So I think he, he needs to earn more fans. That's just the nature of these, you know, the scouting media outlets. Like if you're not 
if you're not highly ranked to begin with, you have to work even harder to get eyes on you. That's just the unfortunate part of it. But I think a, an even bigger part of it is that production came at lower levels when he is a 22, 23 year old uh, out of college. Um, usually you don't want to put too much stock into those college hitters um, when they're crushing you know, pitches against 19, 20 year olds. They are typically a little more advanced. Now he put together a good numbers in high Winston-Salem as well. So, and I think that was, I think he's still a little too advanced for that, but it's still better. Um, I think he's going to need to put together those types of numbers in double A before he really shoots up the rankings. But I mean, he's, he's got a good hit tool from what we've seen so far. He's, an elite athlete. He's got great speed, great defense. Um, unfortunately, he did face a 50-game suspension to close out his season. Um, but he he has produced when he's on the field. So I'm excited to see him this coming season. I think he's got a real shot to shoot up the rankings this year. Yeah, feels like a make or break for him as somebody who's like, mm-hmm. you won't hear from him ever again, or he's going to be a guy that we're like, why did everybody miss this guy for miss on this yep. guy for so long? Because uh, yeah, if he can just be like a league average bat in, in a lot of areas, like that defense, that athleticism certainly makes him very valuable. Noah, do you have anything else for our very first guest on Put It On The Board podcast here? <laughs> uh, off the top of my head, I don't think so. I, I think we uh, we cover just about everything. Um, did you have any any more that you would like us to keep an eye on outside of Christian Mena, just one or two other names that you think are primed for a big season with your parting words here. So, yeah, I will give you one more name to keep an eye on. And that is Luis Miesis, who ranked in the low twenties in the MLB.com top 30. So he's a guy who has a prototypical, you know, right field, starting right field framework. He's a big 6'3", 200-pound, left-handed hitting right fielder. He's got a strong arm. He's got above-average raw power. And he has produced pretty good numbers in the minor leagues, even as high as AA, where he was hitting around 280 in his time with the uh, Project Birmingham initiative. Um, I believe he also led... Um, his league in Winston-Salem in extra base hits. So he has been an extra base hit machine. And I think he's got some more raw power to transition some of those doubles into home runs. Um, his biggest issue is he is a little too aggressive at the plate right now. He's got to you know, be a little more patient. He's got to draw some more walks and cut down on those strikeouts. But he's a guy that has all of the ability to be a starting right fielder in the major leagues, in my opinion. There you have it. That's Michael Suero, contributor to Sox on 35th. Check him out on Twitter. That's uh, M Suero. That's S-U-A-R-E-O. Michael, the first guest on part, uh, put it on the board history. You will go down in the history books for this one, and I'll work on getting that plaque sent over to you. I'll be looking out for it. Appreciate it, guys. This will be the answer to a trivia question in about 35 years, so just remember it. (laughs) Love it. Love it. All right, Michael, uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, till next time. I'm sure we'll have you back. Okay, that was Michael Suero of Socks on 35th. 
recapping the White Sox top 30 prospect list from MLB.com. Really good stuff from a guest that uh, I had no prior history or, or knowledge of. Noah, that was all kind of you pointing out Michael and the work that he does for that site at SoxOn35th.com. And um, yeah, just really good stuff. I think we hit on all of the big names that Sox fans should be keeping an eye out for uh, this upcoming season. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, this 2023 will be my fourth season contributing for Sox on 35th. So I'm familiar with Michael's work. Um, I read a lot about his prospect articles. Um, he actually did just release his top 30 prospect rankings through Sox on 35th. So if you want to dive into more specifics about Michael's thoughts personally, you can go and check that out on the Sox on 35th Twitter or the website or on Michael's personal Twitter as well. Um, I think you'll find that his rankings are a little bit different than MLB.com's rankings. So if you want to read more about that, be sure to check out his work. Do you have anybody else? that I guess just kind of putting a putting a bow on that sort of prospect conversation that you feel like we need to touch on that we didn't. I mean, we didn't really mention Oscar Colas and what he is for the White Sox in the prospect, but I view him more as like a major league addition. I think, you know, he's a major league guy. Is there anybody else you just feel like you didn't get to get your your word in about here that, that you want to go over? Yeah, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, uh, one of the first couple days of spring training, there was a certain photo uh, that was posted on Twitter of the first two picks in the White Sox draft oh, last year see, standing next to this. each other. I did see this. And one of them looked like an adult and one of them looked like a child. Uh, and that big man who's listed at six foot nine, that is Noah Schultz, the White Sox first round pick from last season out of high school. Uh, actually in Oswego in the Chicagoland area. Um, and I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least bring him up in conversation and what we think is uh, his potential for the team. Um, to start off, I mean, he's a left-handed pitcher in a system that, as we talked about before, is uh, pretty thin on left-handed pitching. Um, and obviously the fact that he stands at six foot nine is something that makes him stand out as well. Um, do you have any thoughts on what you've seen out of him so far? Well, I mean, Noah Schultz is just hard. I mean, he hasn't played a lot of baseball as an Illinois high schooler, as a 19-year-old kid and a first-round draft pick by the White Sox last year. Yeah, last season, 2022, signed for $2.8 million, took his commitment away from Vanderbilt to get him to uh, to join it. And I think it's just another one of these classic wait-and-see guys because like, I don't really know what to expect. You worry, I at least do, about a guy that that's that is that tall and his ability to locate and kind of uh, spot his stuff and control his stuff as his body continues to mature. When you are that size, it's something that we saw a lot of with. Uh, oh, what was it, Alec? You know who I'm talking about, Alec Hansen. Alec Hansen. Yeah, that was a name that I haven't heard in a while. But yeah, it was another similar deal where it's like he grew a lot. He was gaining a lot of weight. He was trying to put on some muscle. And Noah Schultz was sitting in the mid 90s in instructional league last year. But one, you hope he stays healthy. And two, you hope he can locate. And uh, I am excited to see him on a professional mound, like like seeing him face some hitters and seeing how he does early in this season, I think will be, will be a big indication of where I'm at with him. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think high school pitchers in general are super risky. And we've seen a lot of high school pitchers drafted in recent years that just haven't panned out for whatever reason, Um, whether that's injuries or just, you know, they didn't end up harnessing the stuff as much as as much as the team had hoped they could. Um, But I think the fact that Noah Schultz hasn't even really pitched for the White Sox other than, you know, in Arizona and the instructional league and in some of their camps last season, and he is already a top five prospect in the system. I think that speaks volumes about the amount of talent that's in his arm. And I'm personally, am very excited to see him actually uh, put on the uniform and get into some games this year and see what he can do. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I mean, like you said, high school, high school pitching, I was going to bring up the name Jared Kelly. And, and like that, there's another example of a guy that, uh, you know, certainly the, the jury's still out on Jared Kelly. Like there's still a lot of room to, to make some strides. And he ended up bouncing back pretty nicely with a 3.52 ERA and 21 starts last year. He's one in 13. If you're a wins and losses guy, if you're a, uh, a real old school baseball guy, one in 13 is a professional pitcher, but no, I mean, that was another uh, high school arm that the white Sox and white Sox fans were very, very high on, very excited about. They kind of moved heaven and earth to bring him in in the second round of that, uh, what draft was, that would have been the 2020 draft at the time. Um, and it just kind of hasn't clicked yet. So a big year for Jared Kelly, in my opinion, still very young and just 21 years old, but this is a year that you want to see him start climbing. We mentioned it too. There are guys that might not even be on this list. that get major league time this year or start flying up. So, I mean, that is the game that you're playing when it comes to prospect development is Sometimes these guys just come out of nowhere, but Noah, that is prospect talk. And that is a wrap on episode one, episode one in the books, the debut premiere episode of put it on the board podcast. So if you made it this far and you're still listening, thank you for starters and make sure that you listen again. We'll be back next week, posting every Monday for the 2023 season. Noah and I breaking down all the news from 35th and Shields and through Charlotte and Birmingham and Winston-Salem and so on and so forth. All things White Sox. We've got it here. Give us a follow at P-I-O-T-B pod on Twitter. That's P-I-O-T-B pod on Twitter. Put it on the board. We're tweeting out promo clips. We're tweeting the links to the episodes, trying to build a community over there. So if you're on White Sox Twitter, go follow us. If you're not, get on White Sox Twitter, and then go follow us. But thank you for listening. This has been episode one. We're going to put some more crooked numbers on that board next week. See you later. (laughs) 